So tonight's reading, beginning at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has, all, has made you also an heir. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Phil. I'm the associate minister here. We're at the moment, though, we're going to turn back to Galatians 3, where we've been working through for the last couple of months. And we're at 3.26, as we've just had read. We're going to pray for God's help, and then we'll spend the next few minutes looking through this passage. Our Father God, we thank you that your spirit, who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, is also speaking the words of your Bible to us now. We pray that we would receive it as his word, that we would trust, that we would obey, and that we would delight in the truth that you give us here tonight. Amen. Romeo and Juliet, Gatsby and Daisy. Jack and uh, Kate Winslet's character, whoever they are, from, uh, from Titanic. There are histories littered with uh, doomed relationships. They're always, it seems, played by Leonardo DiCaprio in movies. I don't know why, whether there's just something weird he's working out there, but whatever. Uh, there are doomed relationships, whether it's the context or their personalities. There are some relationships that just seem doomed from the outset. And the Old Testament in the Bible is basically the story of a doomed relationship. It's the story of unfaithfulness. It's the story of increasing distance and misunderstanding. It's the story of total incompatibility. The incompatibility of God and people like you and me. When humanity sinned, a great barrier dropped down. In the Garden of Eden, it was a flaming sword. And then at the temple, it's a massive brick wall and a thick curtain, all designed to say, stay out. Because uh, if you like, the Bible pictures God as a pure fire. And the moment humanity sinned, it was as if we drenched ourselves in petrol. God is no longer safe. We're no longer compatible. And we read uh, then through the rest of the Old Testament, just a succession of the very best of humans, all failing to measure up, to reach up to achieve the goodness that means that they are welcome before God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all try, all fail. Uh, Then things actually get worse when the law is given to Moses. Instead of being a ladder that they can climb up to God, it 
proves to be a searchlight that just exposes how foul and mucky and impure humans are. You get this litany of great heroes, Samson, David, Solomon, but none of them, none of them manages to live a good life, a pure life, a perfect life. None of them manages to achieve a relationship with God. And by the end of 39 books and over 2,000 years of history in the Old Testament, it all looks pretty hopeless. This relationship looks like it's doomed to end in the fires of endless hell. That's where it looks like things are heading. But then God does something utterly unthinkable. Utterly unthinkable. And the whole of history turns on it. Instead of sending a judge to destroy us, God sends a son to save us by dying for us. To give us the righteousness that we can't achieve. And more than that, to give us the sonship that is only his. See, the climax of the whole Bible story uh, the revelation of who God is. There are so many things that God has revealed to be in the Old Testament. He's the creator. He's the judge. He's the sustainer. He's the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty in battle. He is holy, holy, holy. But at the central moment in history when God reveals ultimately, most perfectly who he is, he reveals himself to be what? Father. Father. And not just the Father, Oh, wow, God has sent Jesus Christ so we can see what a wonderful relationship he has with his perfect son. But the father who wants to welcome you and me so that we can say not just God is the father, but God is my father, your father, our father. That is the central story of the Bible. How God turns unrighteous sinners and adopts us as perfect sons. And that has profound implication when you get that. It has profound implications for the way you think about yourself. It has profound implications for the way we treat each other here. And it has profound implications, of course, for how we relate to God. And we'll see all of those as we work through Galatians 3. Now, um, apologies, you're going to have to do some hard work tonight. We're basically parachuting in to the middle of a, a serious theological argument. Uh, paratroopers are always... Um, uh, my friends who are paratroopers in the army, they always say uh, there is no sort of safe back. Being a paratrooper means you're always surrounded. And basically, you're just dropping in and you're, oh, what on earth is going on? And that's what's going to happen tonight, but it's all right. You're a clever bunch. You'll cope. So Galatians 3, we're in the middle of a theological argument, a very serious and heavy theological debate. And our passage is dealing with the same issue that's been going on throughout Galatians, the question of how you and I can have access to God how we can be right with God, how we can be his people. And throughout, the question has been asked in a variety of different ways, but it's always basically come back to, look, is it by trusting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and in his death and resurrection, or is it by trusting what Jesus Christ did and then doing certain rituals, obeying certain laws myself? Is it purely trust in what Jesus did, or is the stuff I've got to do too? That's the basic, that's the, the nuts of it. But so far, he's talked in forensic language. Now, forensic means um, to do with criminal law. So forensic science, that's CSI, that sort of thing. Forensic means to do with criminal law. And he's talked in categories of righteous and unrighteous. Do I have a status as righteous before God the judge or unrighteous? 
But now we see uh, the stakes actually get a lot higher as he, as he says, look, righteous, unrighteous. They, these aren't sort of um, theoretical categories. This isn't an abstract idea. They point to a relational truth. Righteous means, oh, adopted as God's much-loved child. Unrighteous means cut off from him for all eternity. The stakes get higher here. And we'll see three things really tonight. In Christ, we're all God's children, which leads to radical equality. In Christ, we're no longer slaves, which means liberating redemption. And by the Spirit, we experience sonship, which is real relationship. So verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That is the whole message of Galatians really summarized in just a few words. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has made you a child of God if you trust in him. That's it. Nothing needs to be added. It's not something you achieve by work. It's something you receive by faith, a gift from God. Okay, so how does faith in Jesus make us children of God? He explains in verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So the ceremony of baptism symbolizes the, the gospel. We'll see it in a, in a number of weeks here. Uh, we have a big tank here at the front, and people are lowered in as a sim- symbolic of dying to the old life and being washed clean of sin. And then they're raised back up out of the water as a sign of coming out to new life, clothed in Christ, washed clean. Now, in the early church, to symbolize being clothed in Christ, as he puts it here, they... Uh, they, they baptize people in, uh, in white linen gowns. They gave you a white linen gown to be baptized. And we don't do that here because I think you'd feel a bit stupid standing at the front of church in a white nighty. Um, and I've always thought it's a strange color to choose when people are going into water. But anyway, um, just don't think about it too much. The, uh, uh, but the issue of clothing really, really matters. You'll see he now starts to work in this issue. You see, clothes help to define your status or your role. They mark you out in life. In some um, spheres today, they really do define you. So if you work in a uniform industry, if you're in the police or the armed forces or you're a medic, your clothes define who you are in one sense, your role, your status within the organization. It's not quite so clear in wider society because most tech billionaires seem to dress like scruffy teenagers. But in ancient culture, your clothes really defined you. You could tell whether someone was slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, without knowing anything about them, without even seeing them wear them. If you just saw their clothes, you knew everything really about their status. And Paul says, if you have faith in Jesus, you are clothed in Christ. So God looks at you if you trust in Jesus, and he looks at you as if you are Jesus, as if you've lived his life. And he treats you, he loves you, he approves of you, he welcomes you accordingly. Okay, so what? Now, Paul starts with horizontal implications, what it means for for one another. Because one of the things, uh, if you remember, the false teachers in Galatia are teaching is that to be really at the heart of the people of God, you need to become Jewish. So effectively, they say, trust in Jesus makes you an economy class Christian. But if you want to be a club class Christian and enjoy the full perks and privileges, oh, well, you've got to get circumcised and you've got to obey the laws of the Old Testament. Now, we're always doing that, to be honest. We're always judging one another and establishing a pecking order. It starts, you know, if you're a boy, it starts in 
primary school with choosing football teams in break, and it just carries on through life. You know, there's always a pecking order. There are always some who are chosen first and some who aren't. And it carries on in every realm of life, it seems, but it stops the moment you trust in Christ. It stops at the door of the church. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is the male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Race, rank, and sex have no relevance in your relationship with God. Now, this isn't an end to all distinctions. Paul has argued throughout Galatians that you don't have to change your culture or ditch your culture to become a Christian. There's no Christian culture. You know, you have to leave every national culture and become Christianized. There is no Christian culture. We're allowed to keep our cultural distinctives. He's, we can't rip 28 to 29 out of context. The context is where we stand in the kingdom of God. Are there first class and second class Christians? And Paul's answer is emphatically no. So if you like, what he's saying is, when it comes to status before God, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. When it comes to your status before God, all are one in Christ Jesus. Whoever you are, if you trust in Christ, you share in the promises made to Abraham, won by Jesus Christ. Two quick implications of this before we move on. Firstly, for identity and secondly, for unity. Identity. Your identity in Christ is more fundamental if you trust in him than anything else about you. Now, the other things that define us remain true. So I don't stop because I now trust in Jesus being a male, English, Arsenal supporting, yes, I do feel sorry for myself today, a crossword loving man who could eat pizza every night for the rest of my life. I don't stop being those things because I'm a Christian. But because I'm in Christ, I now have more in common with a female Zimbabwean gluten intolerant Sudoku lover who supports Spurs than I but who loves Jesus, than I do with a male English Arsenal fan who loves pizza and doesn't trust in Jesus. Because faith in Christ Jesus is the most fundamental thing about you. It redefines you. Identity. Secondly, unity. There is no favoritism in God's family. Now, some of us know what it is to be an unfavored child, I'm sure. Some of us know what it is to see particular attention and affection and favors given to one child, but not to us. Well, the bad news is that God does have a favorite. His own son, the Lord Jesus. The good news is, if you trust in Christ, you and I, share in all of his favored blessings. None of us need fear that we'll be the unfavored child. In Christ, we are that favored child. So although there'll be, uh, there will be different blessings, different rewards, if you like, in heaven, there'll be no divisions, no first and second class Christians. It won't like you know, those all-inclusive resorts you go to and you get different colored wristbands. Uh, and you realize that you, know, you, you only have access to two of seven restaurants, and I'm sorry, but you can't use the nice pool. You know, it won't be like that in heaven. 
we'll all have the same color wristband, the one that says in Christ and gives us access to everything. There will be no area only for Jews or non-Jews or special access only for men or for full-time Christian workers. All who are in Christ will enjoy all the blessings of heaven. Now, I love this church. I really do. I was part of it when it started. I've always loved this church. It's the first church, if I'm honest, that ever felt like my church uh, when I joined it in 2001. And I hope that you'll feel the same however long you're here. And we're not the most diverse bunch when you read verses like this. Um, but that's partly just an accident of history. We're only 17 years old as a church. Um, but one of the things I'm enjoying most is seeing that increasingly we do reflect more and more year on year the diversity of London. And that's a wonderful thing and something to be celebrated. <coughs> um, I particularly enjoy seeing the way that International Cafe is becoming more and more something at the heart of our church, something that we delight about and, and try to welcome internationals properly into life in London. But I do wonder... Uh, when I read this passage, it does make me wonder. I know we're great at saying hello to people. And most newcomers I meet say that what a wonderful welcome they've had at this church. But I read this passage and I, and I do just wonder whether the, we're very good at, or we can be very, very good at welcoming people who are similar to us, who fit with the majority culture but whether we need to just keep working. Because I I just wonder, if you don't fit into the majority culture, if you're uh, old, like me, um, (laughs) or if you don't speak English very well, um, or if you don't have a graduate job, I just wonder whether we get a, a hello, but not much more. I would hate if that was the case. I love it when I hear that people who are uh, not, quote, from the majority culture tell me how warmly they've been welcomed. And I hope that is always going to be a feature of our church and that we'll keep working at that. But there is always a danger that because outside of church, most of us don't forge friendships with people who are different from us, that those attitudes come into church as well. And so let's just be careful that we don't say a hello to people who are a little bit different before moving on to our mates, but that we seek to really love and welcome people, whoever you are, whatever your background. You know, we can't change the majority culture of the church. It is what it is. But we can change the majority behavior and ensure that we are a loving place. And if we're truly to be church, then we've got to keep working to make sure that we are a place where everybody not just is welcome, but feels welcome, regardless of accent or level of education or skin color or sexual orientation or age. Whoever you are, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, you're welcome to join this band of sinners as we seek to put our sin to death each day and follow Jesus. And I hope we'll all do our part in making sure everybody And anybody is welcome to join. And it might sound trite, but can I just encourage us just to make that concrete tonight? At some point this evening, talk to someone who's different from you. Uh, Ask them how they've come to be at CCM. Ask them uh, what God's been, um, what they've been learning about God since they've been at CCM. Whether people are convinced Christians or still looking into things, they should have an answer to that, um, I would hope. Um, But let's let's just try to make sure that we, we do everything possible to celebrate Uh, the glorious unity that Christ has won. Because the truth is that there are huge, huge blessings when we do 
when we reach beyond ourselves. Um, I was really, really grateful when I went to theological college um, uh, a few years ago. Uh, somebody said, look, Phil, the, make sure that you don't just stick with the people like you. Move a little bit beyond the chino-wearing ex-city workers when you get to theological college, of whom there were a few. Um, and so uh, uh, with those words in mind, I ended up um, in a prayer triplet with a couple of guys who were really quite different from me, one of whom um, was a, a northern brickie who was 10 years younger than me. And I had nothing in common with him. And it's been one of the richest friendships I've ever had. Um, it's brilliant. Because he has his Christian faith is shaped by a different culture than mine. And I see blind spots in me that I wouldn't see. I remember I saw this first when we were having a discussion. Um, and there were a number of us um, from very similar background uh, lamenting the great sacrifices we'd made to, uh, to go into full-time ministry and trying not to sound like we were grumbling while grumbling um, about the financial sacrifice of being in full-time ministry and, and, and sort of nodding and, and comforting one another. And Cookie said, what you talking about? You get house, you get recession-proof job. It's like winning lottery. <laughs> and it was brilliant. It was a complete slap round the face. You thought, well, what do we, th- gosh, when you look at how good God is to us materially now. And it was just embarrassing. And I was so glad that somebody outside my culture was able to talk that truth to me. Your life will be so enriched if not all of your friends are just like you. So enjoy the privilege that you have at church of people who are different, but who share Christ with you. It is wonderful that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is the male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Secondly, in Christ, we're no longer slaves, for there is liberating redemption. Now, Paul returns to the theme of the Old Testament law in chapter 4. He'd been talking about it earlier in chapter 3. And it's as if someone's answered an objection saying, okay, yeah, fine, you become a a son of, of God by faith in Jesus. But surely, surely, obeying the law just makes you more fully a son and gets you even closer to the heart of the people of God. You often hear the phrase, you're on the wrong side of history. It's very often badly used. But here, it's absolutely right. And Paul's point is that, look, if you stick, if you look to the rituals and rules of the Old Testament to bring you closer to God than Jesus has got you, you are nuts and you are on the wrong side of history. You are actually trading sonship for slavery and that is a dumb trade. Verses 1 to 2. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So firstly, he reminds them that the, the law sort of operated as a guardian. It stands between the son and their inheritance, an incredibly wealthy family. And the son will have everything one day. But between him and spending the money as he likes, between him and running the business as he likes, stands the guardian until he reaches the age of majority, 21 or whatever it is. And until that point, he's no better than a slave. He has no access to, to making the decisions and to enjoying the good things. And Paul says, look, in Jesus Christ, you've reached the age of majority. The inheritance is now yours. Why would you then go and put the law between you and the inheritance and go, go from being a son to back to being a slave? That's absolutely crazy. And he then says something ab- you know, even more extraordinary, actually, in verse 3. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. 
Now that phrase, elemental spiritual forces, could mean a number of things. But he seems to be talking about the, um, the, law, of, um, the law of Judaism. And then in verse 9, he uses it to talk about paganism. And so he's saying, look, the elemental laws of Judaism, the, the Old Testament law, if you use it to try and get close to God, it's no better to you than being a pagan, to be perfectly honest. It's extraordinary. The law given by God, if you use it for the wrong thing, if you try and use it to get close to God, you might as well try you might as well do you know pagan sacrifices for all the good it'll do you. It's useless for that. Because, verses 4 to 5, it ignores the fact God has done everything necessary to bring you into his family. Verse 4, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit he calls out, Abba, Father. Not just redemption, but adoption. Not just an end to slavery, but a welcome into the family. Now, why on earth would you trade that for trying to earn your way closer to God? Now, it is worth mentioning here um, that you may have uh, noticed that I've been talking about sonship a lot, and it seems to switch between sonship and being a child of God in this passage. Uh, now, there's a, actually, it's best to stick with the son language. Let me explain to you. If you don't, you lose how feminist, how egalitarian Paul is being. You see, in the ancient world, only a male son could inherit. You remember that from Downton Abbey. But in the ancient world, only a male son could inherit. And what Paul is saying by calling all of us, both men and women, sons, he says, in Christ, those distinctions of sex, of gender, They've just been abolished. When it comes to your relationship with God, male and female alike are sons who inherit. It's an incredible statement. Now, that really was revolutionary for Paul. And the final verses are relational. Verses 6 to 7, by the Spirit we experience sonship. Now, he's talked about the status of sonship in these verses as he contrasts it with slavery. He now talks about the experience of sonship at the end. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. God sent his son so that you and I might have the, the status of sonship. That's why he sent his son, so that you could be his son too. He sent his spirit, why? So that you could enjoy the experience of being a son. That's why he sent him. And we express that perhaps, I think, most clearly when we pray. As J.I. Packer puts it, praying father, that's the spirit of Jesus on the lips of God's children. In the rest of the world, we are being continually assessed and judged. And the truth is that our identity, our, our sense of self-worth is determined to a large degree by the assessments people make on us day in, day out. We post on social media. Is it ignored or is it liked, retweeted? How many times? We have an appraisal at work. Am I valuable to the company? How am I doing in comparison with people my age and my experience? We play sport or perform music. Did they like it? Did they applaud? Did they applaud like they actually meant it? 
we date, and it feels like we're on a sort of never-ending X factor of, you know, will, will I be funny enough, kind enough, good enough company to make it through to the next week, the next round? Life can just feel like an endless series of appraisals and judgments of people determining your worth, your value. But Jesus came to set you free from all of that. Uh, friends of ours adopted a couple of kids. Uh, they didn't do it because they needed it. Uh, frankly, they've got more than enough kids of their own. Uh, far more kids than most people seem to want. Um, and, uh, but they thought, we can, we can actually give a loving home to some needy children. So they decided to adopt a couple of kids. And they didn't do it because these kids were so amazing. They thought, you know, gosh, we'll gain from them. Look, I mean, look, honey, this one has an IQ of 185, and the other could be an Olympic athlete. I'm just saying, you know, it was actually they came with really significant difficulties and health problems. They did it because they thought they could offer a really loving home. Now, I've been around to their house quite a bit. Let me tell you something I have never, ever, ever seen. I have never seen Paul sitting down with an appraisal form with the two adopted children, saying, okay, let's just uh, go through the week, shall we? Uh, Helpfulness around the house? Hmm, okay. Uh, Number of fights with siblings. Disturbances before 7 a.m. on the weekend. Performance at school. Okay, this week it's looking like a B minus. You're still in the family this week, but it's shape up or ship out. Do I make myself clear? I have never seen that. And neither ever will I. That would just be an extraordinary way to behave. And yet you and I act so often like that's how it works with God. We hear him say, I've adopted you. And then we act like we've got to keep performing to stay in the family. We're, uh, we, have a, we confess our sins every week as a church. A wonderful opportunity to, to say, God, you don't, you don't choose us. You don't welcome us on the basis of how good we are. We can be honest about all of our failings and our wickedness and know that we're forgiven in Christ. And instead we turn it round. And we turn it into a mental checklist. And as we're praying the confession, we're, we're calculating whether we've lived a good enough life this week to, to lift our eyes and look to God or not. And God is baffled by our behavior. He's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing filling out appraisal forms? You're my child. I didn't send Jesus to die for you so that you would then live like a slave. All those assessments, all those standards we have to meet outside of these walls all week. But the wonderful thing is if you trust in Christ, you get to ground your identity. You get to build your self-image on this. In Christ, I am a child of God. And by Christ, I remain a child of God. And when you begin your day praying, Father God, you remind yourself, I am a child of God. Before I've done anything today, before I've achieved anything today, purely as a gift, the moment you pray, Father God, at the beginning of the day, you remind yourself, I am a child of God. Whenever anybody says to you tomorrow, however it goes at work or in relationships, your inherent value is based on this. God looks at you as clothed in Christ, and that cannot be taken from you. God views you as his child. 